That's Easter Spring Creek style, right? Uh, 
What, what an amazing time of worship. You know, there's a, a greeting that Christians have used on Easter Sunday morning for centuries. I say, Jesus is risen, and you say, He's risen indeed. Let's try that again all together. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now I believe you believe it. So we are going to do a message today as we wrap up this series called The Week That Changed Everything about the resurrection of Christ. But I do want to remind you, we have church here every weekend. We really do. <laughs> and next week, this is where we're going. And it's a message that we call Contagious Joy. I think we have a slide. There we go. And... We have a real rare privilege of having Derek Tennant with Left Arm Comedy with us and his sister Julie. Julie was born as a Down syndrome child and one time when she was younger and she understood that she was born with an extra chromosome, she asked her grandfather, what does that mean? And he said, well, sweetheart, God gave you the love chromosome. And that's really so many people who have a Down sibling, a Down's child will say that that child changed their life. That literally they are some of the most giving and loving people on this earth. And we want to use that and this opportunity to have Derek with us to talk about one of the things that brings us the greatest joy in life, which is to give our life away and to serve other people. So really, truly, the best way we serve is when we serve out of love. When we do the things that we love, the things God has wired us up to do, and what we do, we do out of just sincere joy. And that, my friends, is contagious. So I'd love for you to join us next week. It's going to be a very special service. But today, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Now, for the past seven weeks... We've been talking about the week that changed everything. It's based on this premise. My apologies to those of you who've been here every week. You've heard this before. But we know that Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, spanned about 1,000 to 1,200 days. We know that because it's three, three and a half years of ministry. Of that time, what we have recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is a record of about 100 of those days. Matthew tells us about 100, Luke about 110. So around 100 days, we know something about the thousand some days, 100. But of those 100 days, in the Gospels, one out of every three chapters is dedicated to telling the story of what happened during seven days, the seven days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So we've spent the last seven weeks talking about what was happening in those seven days. And we didn't cover it all, but we gave you a good overview of what was happening. And this is the culmination of all that. I'm calling it the road back to hope. If you will, just bow your heads with me. Let's start with prayer. Lord, I believe you're already here in a powerful way. And I believe, God, you're at work. I sincerely trust that on this resurrection morning, as we are sharing a message that's being told all around the world, that, God, you're using this as an opportunity to draw all of us deeper into your heart, those of us who know and follow you and those who don't know you, that they might come to know you. I pray, God, that you would do that miracle today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I, just, I have a sincere question. Have you ever just wanted to run away? I mean, I, I know as kids we threatened to do it, and we probably got as far as the neighbor's house, you know, with a bag of cookies, all the essentials. But as an adult... Have you ever just been tempted to chuck it and just get away from it all? Maybe life was too stressful, it was too busy, it was too much of what you didn't want. It could be that you were processing through a major traumatic event. You lost your job, your marriage tanked. Maybe you were experiencing the death of a, a spouse or a best friend. Or maybe you're one of the responsible adults in the room and the thought of running away never crosses your mind, but you've thought, I need to get away. 
I just need some downtime. I, I need a break to process all this stuff I'm trying to go through. Well, certainly if you identify with that feeling to whatever measure, please know you're not alone. And please know that it's that feeling that's at the heart of the story I want to share with you today. This is a story that's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and it happens to be the longest record of an appearance of Jesus in his resurrected form. So get this, in the wake of Jesus' death, two of his followers have given up and left town. They're running away. Emmaus is where they're headed to. It's a little town about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Why Emmaus? Well, nobody really knows for sure, but maybe it was just better to be there than where they were at. So think of the road to Emmaus as kind of an escape route, an escape from their pain, an escape from their confusion, an escape from their grief. It's a road that everyone in this room is going to spend some measure of their life walking along that path. Frederick Buechner, he said it so well, Emmaus is where we go and what we do in order to escape the problems and pain of the world. Craig Barnes, who's the pastor of the National Cathedral in D.C., said Emmaus is where you go when you have to get away because the person or thing you were counting on has let you down. So these two on the road to Emmaus, they don't understand what's happened. All they know is the one that they had dedicated their lives to is dead and his body's missing. All their hopes and all their dreams have been crushed. Now, I've had struggles like that in my life, when my dreams didn't come true, when I felt like life had played a cruel trick on me, even sometimes when I felt like God had abandoned me in the midst of all that. Maybe you've walked down that road yourself. Maybe you're walking down it right now. You've been disappointed. You've been disillusioned. You're looking for some way to make sense of everything that's happening all around you. So these two people are walking away from Jerusalem, feeling completely dejected. Later, we're told that one of them is named Cleopas. We're not told the name of the other disciple. Some believe it might have been Cleopas' wife. Other people believe that Luke anonymously inserted himself into the story and he just doesn't give his name. But I like the way Barbara Lundblad said it. She said, this is not just a story about two disciples on the road to Emmaus 2,000 years ago. There are two disciples, one named Cleopas. Did you notice the other's not named? And she says, the other's you and me. Luke left a blank space for us to fill in our names. All of our hopelessness is there on that road. Every broken down dream, every doubt we've ever had or still have. And that's an interesting thought. And that's really what I'd like to do in this message. I just want you to suspend your own life for a minute. Try to get inside somebody else's shoes. I want us to try to feel what these disciples are feeling. And I think that really what they're going through, what they were experiencing, is something not all that foreign to your life and mine. So in this first point, I call it when life doesn't turn out the way you plan. One of the biggies, one of the biggies they were facing that all of us will eventually face is this. Our losses pile up. So here's how we're introduced to the two. They just stood there, long-faced, like they'd lost their best friend. So the Bible's telling us you could look at these two as they're traveling down the road, and you could just tell from their posture, by the look on their face, they look like they lost their best friend. I'm sure their gaze is downward, their posture slooped over. I mean, they're literally the walking, breathing example of what grief looks like. You know, if there's any word that i found that best summarizes life, it's loss. Loss is inevitable in life. Nobody in this room is going to escape it. When you're born, you lose the security and safety of the womb. When we go to school, we, we lose the security of family life. As we grow older, one of the first significant losses we experience as children is typically the loss of a family pet. Somewhere along the line, you're going to lose some friends. Some of them are going to move away. Others are just going to desert you. 
And then the price tag on loss just gets steeper the older we go. Eventually we lose mom and dad. And then we might lose a spouse. We might lose a best friend. We lose our health somewhere along the line. And those are just the ordinary losses of life. But whose life is ordinary? Truth be told, if we had the time to do it, there'd be people in this room who'd confess that I lost my childhood innocence at the hand of some adult who abused me, took advantage of me. Others in this room, they would say, you know, I, I lost the security of being in a relationship that I thought would be my happily ever after when they left me for another man, left me for another woman. We lose confidence in ourselves when we lose our jobs or we lose out in love. I've said many times, loss is inevitable in life, growth is optional. The truth is, you live long enough, you're going to lose some things very important to you. Whether you go through that or grow through that, that's entirely up to you. So these disciples are grieving the loss of their teacher, their leader, their best friend. They say the saddest day and the longest walk you'll ever take is the walk away from the grave of someone you love. And people who've been through that experience will tell you firsthand what that's like. You feel like your world has come to an end. You cry till you can't cry anymore. You feel like I'll never be the same again. You know it's over, it's done, it's finished. There's nothing you can do about it. It's the longest walk in the saddest day. So the losses have piled up for these disciples, and they couldn't square the past 48 hours with their belief that Jesus was the unique son of God. They've lost all of that. And then the second reality sets in, our hope runs out. Listen to what they said. We had our hopes that he was the one the one about to deliver Israel. You know, the, the number one reason for situational depression, for despondency in our life, is a loss of hope. So we have these ideas. I was hoping that she would want me as much as I wanted her, but she doesn't. I was hoping this relationship would fill the emptiness in my heart, but it hasn't. I was hoping this job would infuse me with a new sense of purpose, but it really didn't. I was hoping moving to a new city would help me to begin life over again, but life is pretty much the same as it's always been for me. For these disciples, their disappointment is all the more profound because they pinned their hopes on Jesus. They thought he was the Savior. They thought he was going to change their lives and change the world forever. And then when he died, the hopelessness set in. Now, you should just know right up front, the biblical definition of hope is very different from our modern usage of the word. When we say the word hope, what we mean typically is I wish. I hope the weather cooperates for the Rangers game today. I, I, I hope the Cowboys will be in the Super Bowl. I mean, th these are wishes, you know, and they're fantasies. They aren't even close to reality, right? <clears throat> it's Easter. I got to poke the Cowboys a little. Got to poke the bear. But, but the Bible never uses hope in this way. In the Bible, hope is always a certainty. It's not a wish. Now, please understand, hope is not the same thing as optimism. It's not the belief that something's going to turn out well. It's the certainty that regardless of how things turn out, God will be there for me. That God never abandons, that God never deserts, that in the end, God will make all things right and new in every way. That's what hope is. Now, hear me saying this because it may be one of the most important things I say to you today. Hope is not the confidence that circumstances will change for the better. Hope is the knowledge and confidence that God's involved in my circumstances and in my future, no matter what happens. Now, many of you in this room know that back in August, I had to have open heart surgery. I had a quadruple bypass. It was shocking to me. Didn't expect it. Didn't see it coming. Thank God I didn't have a heart attack that precipitated that. But still, it scared me. 
And I wasn't sure. I mean, it's the scariest thing I ever went through. And I know as your spiritual leader, to hear me talking about my fears maybe doesn't instill you with a lot of confidence in me, but I'm just being honest. The truth is, though, I had hope. But my hope was not tied to my circumstance. My hope, my certainty, was that no matter what happened to me, I was safely tucked into God's hands, that God was holding my life. Now, I was not ready to leave my wife and my girls and my grandgirls. I loved them incredibly, and I know they loved me. But I knew that God held them like he held me. And I knew that no matter what happened, they would be taken care of and I would be taken care of because God does all things well. So my hope is in that promise that one day, maybe not today, but one day for sure everything will be made right in every way. That's biblical hope, and these disciples had zeroed out on it. The other thing they're struggling with is something we do too, and that is our faith gives in. Now, it's really interesting. You know, we've got four Gospels. They all give an account of the resurrection, but Luke has a unique one. Luke 24, there are three resurrection accounts. And in each account, the disciples are all struggling with believing, believing in the resurrection. Now, you know, if if you're struggling today, maybe you're here today because somebody kind of made you come to church because it's Easter. I get that. And maybe you're just kind of holding back your judgment and sitting there and thinking, okay, I'll let him say what he's going to say, but I don't believe any of this hoo-ha. Well, please understand, you're in good company because the disciples didn't either. When it all happened, they were struggling with believing, just like in this story I'm telling you today. I love the way Craig Barnes said it. This is beautiful. He said, the question that Easter asked of us is not do you believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, but have you encountered a risen Christ? You see, once they met Jesus... Once they met Jesus, then their hearts were settled. You know, a lot of people today have this belief that we're so sophisticated, we're so well-informed, we live in such an enlightened age that miracles and things like the resurrection, that these are things that back in the Bible days people just readily believed. C.S. Lewis, the great Cambridge scholar, had a term for this. He called it chronological snobbery. In other words, that, that, that people think that the resurrection of Christ, that we greet it with skepticism back Today, but back in those days, they would just swallow this story hook, line, and sinker. But that's not the case at all. A dead person was a dead person. And they'd have no easier time believing that someone came back from the dead than you and I would. Everybody understood. All the disciples understood Jesus died. Jesus' death wasn't just a setback for them. It was game over. It was, we're through. In fact, in their minds, Jesus joined the scrap heap of history along with other wannabe messiahs who were killed. So the good news is, is if you're skeptical about the resurrection, join the club. Everyone around Jesus was skeptical too until they met the risen Christ. You know, a lot of people have raised objections to Christianity over the years. How could a loving God send people to hell? How can God be all good and all powerful and evil exists in the world? How is it that you can square the findings of science with the claims of scripture? I mean, why are Christians such hypocrites? And people struggle with all kinds of things, but you know the real question, the big question, is did Jesus really rise from the dead? If he did, then all the other issues become secondary. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we need to accept what he had to say. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then who cares? The issue upon which everything hangs is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If he didn't, you don't have to worry about the rest. And that's what Paul told us in the book of Corinthians, that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you don't even have a right to your faith. That really the whole shebang rides on this glorious fact of Easter. So the resurrection of Christ is the vindication of who he is. The resurrection, if it's true, means there's a God and he's acted in history. 
So it all rides on the resurrection. These two disciples, they heard about the empty tomb, but they had no explanation for it. They left Jerusalem. They weren't hanging around expecting for some world-changing surprise to happen. They thought it was game over. That's why they've left. That's why they're going to Emmaus. Now, you can mark it down. A tragedy will always result in a crisis of faith. When life gets hard, when things don't turn out the way you expected, and all your fears come true, your faith is going to take a beating. So what do you really believe? And will your faith hold up in a crisis? So how does Jesus respond to this crisis on the road to Emmaus? So let me begin by saying this. There's really two kinds of hope. You can put your hope in something, or you can put your hope in someone. When we're hoping for something, what we're really hoping for is a particular outcome, for a particular circumstance to turn out the way we want it to, so I hope I get that job. I hope I get that house. I hope I get that girl. Or I hope I get that girl who gets a job that can help me get the house. I mean, something <laughs> in there has got to work. So sometimes the thing we hope for, though, is we kind of hope against hope. I hope I don't lose her. I hope it's not cancer. But you know, one day it will be. If it's not cancer, it's going to be something else. One day, and the truth is, everything we hope for will eventually disappoint us. Everything, thing, every circumstance, every situation is going to wear out. It's going to give out, going to fall apart. It's going to melt down. So the question is, do you have a deeper hope? What's your foundational hope? In other words, what's your fallback when all the things that you're hoping for don't come to pass, do you have someone that you put your hope in? You see, all of Scripture points to one man, to Jesus Christ. Not because he's going to give us that thing we hope for, because I already told you, those things will eventually let you down. But that he's going to give us himself. And when he gives us himself, it comes with the promise that I don't abandon, I don't desert, I'm always there with you. And no matter what, you can trust me that in the end, I'll make all things new. So the first thing Jesus does for his disciples, and by extension, what he does for all of us, is he gives us himself. Notice this verse. It says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, I want you to understand, first and foremost, Easter is not a message about God up there somewhere. It's about God with us right now. Christ is always near. It's not a question of whether or not God is with you. God is with you. It's whether or not you perceive him being with you. Now, did you know this? A verse said that they were kept from recognizing him. What's up with that? I mean, some people have said they were just so overwhelmed with grief that they didn't recognize Jesus. Other people have said, no, God intentionally veiled their eyes. I don't know the answer to that one. But I can tell you this. When we fail to see God, it's always a problem of perception. Jesus is standing there in their presence, and they don't recognize him. Now, if you know anything at all about the world of classical music, you might recognize the name of Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is literally one of the world's best violin players. The New York, New York Times said about him, Joshua Bell stands in no one's shadow when it comes to playing the violin. So this was really interesting. A few years back, the Washington Post decided to do an experiment. They asked Bell to show up at a Washington, D.C. subway station. It asked him, wear jeans, wear a long-sleeved T-shirt and a baseball cap. You can see him right there. And we want you to play at 7.45 in the morning. So at the height of rush hour in D.C., he's supposed to get out in the subway station, and he starts to play. And he shows up, and he does that. He's got on the, the get-up, and he's got his violin there. He said he opened his case. He threw a few bucks in, you know, so he kind of started. People don't give him money. And he starts playing. He plays for 42 minutes. You can watch the entire performance on YouTube. But the thing about it is no one paid any attention to him. 
No one recognizes him. In fact, he pulled out his violin. This is his violin. It's the Gibson X Huberman. It was actually crafted in 1713 by Anatone, Antonio Stradivari. You, you recognize that name, right? It's worth $3.5 million. Glad they didn't let that little flat, uh, fact slip out in the subway, right? He's playing this away. And you know the deal is, is there people not far from him at this booth selling lottery tickets, and there's this huge line, you know, getting ready to buy lottery tickets. Nobody's turning around. Nobody's acknowledging the guy. The best of the best is there. Plays for 42 minutes, six long pieces by Bach. It's amazing, but they can't see him. So this is really oddly similar to what happens in this story we're looking at today. Jesus exudes nothing but beauty and truth, but none of the disciples recognize him. So the message of Easter is this. is Jesus shows up on the road to difficulty, it's a great message to lonely and hurting people everywhere, to everybody who's ever felt abandoned by God that Christ will never desert you. He's not in the grave. He's risen. And even though there may be times when you don't sense or feel his presence, it doesn't mean he's not there. Something else to consider. We know from Easter on, for the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to various groups of people. That's what the Bible tells us. But what's fascinating about this story is that Jesus spends all this time with two unknowns. This is the longest recorded appearance of Jesus in his resurrected form. And he spends the most time with two people we don't even really know for sure who they are. We know they're not a part of the 12. And if Jesus has that much time for them, how much time do you think he's got for nobodies like you and me? He's got all the time in the world for us. Here's the second thing he does. He encourages us to open up. So one of them named Cleopas asked, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said, what things? Now think about this. Jesus knew exactly what had happened over the past few days, right? And instead of saying, guys, you see these scars here in my hand? I mean, instead of saying, I've lived this, instead of saying, open your eyes, see it's me, he says, what happened? Why does Jesus ask them to explain? It's for this principle right here, because suffering must be spoken to be broken. You know, Jesus is constantly in the Gospels encouraging people to tell their stories, mainly because he wants to do more than simply heal our broken hearts. He wants to break the bonds of suffering. In this room right now, you may have a disease, you have a problem, you have a pain. Jesus can address that. He might even take it away from you. But that doesn't end suffering because suffering is different from our pain. Suffering is what you tell yourself about why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And that part, if we don't talk it out, then we end up still taking it out on ourselves and other people. So Jesus wants to break the grip of suffering that's grabbed hold of these disciples, and he wants them to tell their story. Because when we tell our story, when we say it, we get greater clarity on what's going on. You know, one of the most effective tools in the enemy's arsenal is to get you all alone and indulging in self-pity. To think that there's no solution for my problem because I'm utterly unique. Now, in recovery, they have a term for this. They call it, they call it uh, terminal uniqueness. And any addict in this room, especially an addict who's a friend of Bill W., will tell you that a person like that, it's nearly fatal. That this belief in terminal uniqueness is nearly fatal because they believe they have a problem so unique that nobody else can identify it and nobody else can help them with that. I can tell you what your problem is. You're too isolated. 
Because if you would open up your life to other people, you would really soon discover that the ways in which we are alike are far more similar than the ways in which we're different from one another. You would break the power of terminal and uniqueness on your life. And in telling your story, you would break the grip of suffering that it has on your life. The third thing Jesus does, he changes our perspective. So first Jesus gives us himself, then he listens to what we have to say, then he has something to say to us. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? So he leads off with how foolish you are. Now it's obvious Jesus and I didn't go to the same seminary because we were taught to be more empathetic and good listeners than that. What I hear you saying is this. Jesus doesn't do that. He just goes to... How foolish you are. Now, I read this story one time at Easter, and somebody came up to me and thought I didn't say the word foolish, and I said full of something else. <laughs> so you know what I said? Mom, change the batteries in your hearing aids. That's what I said. <laughs> so Jesus, Jesus pivots from saying you're foolish, and he says, have you forgotten what God's word says? But he didn't stop there. He goes on to explain to them that all of Scripture said these things would happen precisely the way they happened. You see, one of the reasons that many of us in this room, we struggle with faith is because we have an inadequate view of truth. So when life blows up on us and it doesn't fit our belief system, we become despondent and we blame God. These two disciples had a problem. They read the Bible superficially. They formed beliefs about the Messiah and it all fit until Jesus died. And when he died, it didn't fit anymore. They were reading the Bible too selectively. What they didn't have is a theology big enough to encompass a suffering Messiah, which is why Jesus said to them in verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Now, aren't you glad that we're so much smarter than they are? We're not, are we? We still read the Bible selectively. We read the parts about Jesus we really like and we decide to throw the rest away. Jesus helped them see that the whole Bible from start to finish is about him. Every page is about him, not just the explicit prophecies, but the promises, the symbols, the blessings, the curses, the shadows, the types, the ceremonies. All of them point to Jesus, every page of Scripture, which is all, why it always stupefies me that seemingly smart Christians think they're so smart and they say, I'm just going to throw away the Old Testament and just believe the New. Hey, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament here. And he's going through the Old Testament Scriptures and saying, every resolution to every story is me. Every symbol here, every page is telling my story. This is the big perspective a lot of us lack. We don't read the Old Testament through a Christocentric lens. We don't read it with Jesus in mind. And Jesus says, this book is about me. So something happens when we start seeing Scripture not as a set of unrelated stories and seeing the story of the entire Bible as about Jesus. Things begin to change. Our hearts begin to burn. And so Jesus does this for them. He gives them himself. He lets them talk about their story, and then he enlarges their perspective by letting them see the word of God in all clarity. The final thing, the difference that he makes. Number one, he wants, we want him to stay with us. So when these disciples on the road to their destination, they get there, they ask the stranger, who was Jesus, if he would stay with them. But Jesus acted like he needed to go on down the road. So the Bible says this, but they urged him strongly Stay with us. Why did Jesus act like he was going on down the road? Well, we're not told, but from their answer, we can deduce this. He's already addressed their need with God's word. Now he's giving them an opportunity to respond by either asking for more or going back to wallowing in their misery. That's the way Jesus always works in our life. 
He's always accessible. He's always ready and willing to help. But he's never forcing his truth on anybody. And if you don't want his truth and you want to wallow in misery, he says, go ahead. You can do that. I'll just go on down the road. But if you want him to stay, he'll stay. What Jesus is really telling us is this. You have as much of God right now as you genuinely want. And that's the most encouraging and discouraging truth I know. It's encouraging, and that is if, if you feel like God is filling your life and you sense his presence and you're walking with him every day, it's because you genuinely want that. And if you feel a complete absence of that, you really don't want his presence all that badly. And this is not dependent on anybody or anything else. It doesn't matter what kind of church you're in. It doesn't matter if your small group is meeting your need. It really doesn't matter if your husband or wife is a believer. You have as much of God right now as you genuinely want. And nobody but you can get in the way of that. So the degree of our connection to God is measured by the intensity of our desire for it. You don't have to settle for a taste of God. You can have as much of him as you really want. A.W. Tozer said it like this, God waits to be wanted. In other words, he always responds to our craving to him. St. John of the Cross, he was one of the mystics of the church. He said something similar. He said, God refuses to be known except by love. So when you love him, when you desire him, you have as much of him as you genuinely desire. Which means this, the Easter message is not an announcement, it's an offer. You can accept it, you can reject it. He would love for you to have this truth, to have him at the center of your life. But if you don't want him, he's not going to force his way into your life. Another difference Jesus makes is we want him to belong to us. So the story of the Bible is a story of God wanting to be close to his people. So close that nothing separates us. Jesus wants to be more than just your teacher or leader. He wants to dwell inside of you. So notice this in verses 30 and 31. When he was at table, when Jesus is at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Do you notice that when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it, it was then that they finally recognized who Jesus was. Let me say that again. They recognized Jesus in the breaking of bread. Why? Well, maybe they noticed his nail-scarred hands. That's a possibility. It could be because it reminded them of the feeding of the 5,000, but I think there's something, a better explanation. To take bread, to give thanks, and break it is the formula for communion. And every time we take of this holy meal that he instituted before the cross, we're saying, Jesus, I want you to be in me. I want to take your body, I want to take your blood, and I want them to be a part of me. I want them to become a part of me like food and drink becomes a part of me. So Jesus' visible presence is now replaced by his invisible presence within us. Jesus disappeared from their sight, but he did not disappear from their presence. He was there. He was with them in a way they couldn't understand before. I love the way Tony Evans said it. Don't lose heart. God has never left your side, and he has a plan to see you through even the most discouraging of circumstances. And finally, we want to tell others. You see, this is what the Bible says. They asked each other. So the two disciples, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. So they're at Emmaus. They're, they're, they're home for the night. It's already late. And they say, hey, we've just met Jesus. we got to go tell other people that we've just met Jesus. And I want to tell you that more than 45 years ago now, I met Jesus as a teenager. And for the last 45 years, I've been trying to tell people about Jesus because I met a risen Jesus, and I want you to know about him too. And of all the hundreds I've led to Christ, I want to tell you about the very first one. I became a Christian. I was in high school. I started carrying my Bible to, to, to high school. I went to public school all my life, went to public school. I carried my Bible to school because, you know, we had study halls. 
and I would take out my Bible, and I could just read my Bible in study hall. I wanted people to know I was a believer, but I wasn't one of those pushy believers, you know, just trying to get everybody saved, believing I was better than everybody. I believe that the life I lived was a far better witness than anything I said. In fact, if I didn't live the life, it didn't matter what I said. Amen? I, if I don't live the life, then people don't care what I have to say. But I wanted to be a believer. I also had a belt. I had this belt made up, and I had them tool into the back the word Maranatha. Maranatha is a Greek phrase. It means Jesus is coming. And I had that on my belt in high school. Now, I went to high school in the 70s, so everybody thought it said marijuana. And that was a different, that was a different kind of challenge. I've had to pivot conversations from pot to Jesus all the time. So you want to get high? Let me tell you about the Lord Most High. I mean, we had to figure out how to talk to people about Jesus when they talk about marijuana. But anyway, I would share, and, and, and I would share all the time. And I can remember a guy I went to elementary school with, went all the way to high school. In ninth grade, his family moved away to California. His name was Tim Miller. And Tim and I, we would talk, and Tim went to a, a high church, you know, a, a very liturgical church. Nothing wrong with liturgical churches, be, believe me, but this was not a church that preached the gospel. And this was a church that he just didn't understand what Jesus did for him, and I would share with him from the heart, but I never knew if I had any effect on Tim. When I was a sophomore in college, I got a letter in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, this is before the days of Internet, before the days of Facebook. This guy had to really work hard because he'd moved to California. I wasn't in Ohio anymore. I'd, I'd moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where I was in college. And he found me in my school and sent me a letter. And all it had on his address was a TM and then an address in California. And Tim starts telling me his story about how he moved away from Ohio. And about the second or third page of the letter in, he said, I want you to know, Keith, you had a main part in me finding the Lord. And he'd given his life. He surrendered his life to Jesus. He was in Bible college like I was studying for the ministry. He went on to become a missionary in West Africa in a little town, a community called, or a country called Upper Volta. And then he's come back and now he's a pastor in Southern California. He's pastored all over the country. I'm very grateful for that. But you know what? From that first story to the last story, I continue to tell people about this risen Jesus that I met a long time ago. And I simply bowed a knee before him and said, Jesus, I want you in my life. I know I've done life my own way, and I don't want to do it my way anymore. I want to do it your way. And I don't understand it all, and I don't know how you change people. And I certainly know it's not going to be about me, but I want you to come into my life and change me from the inside out. And you know what? I've never gotten over that miracle. That's my resurrection story. I've met the risen Christ. He lives in my life, and I hope he lives in yours too. But if he doesn't, and maybe for the first time in your life you really get what this whole story is about, that Christ came and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death you and I don't want to die. He carried our guilt. He carried our shame. He rose on the third day to prove that he was a unique son of God, and he wants to live in your life today. I wonder if you'd pray with me now. Father, thank you so much for your incredible love, for the miracle of the new birth. Thank you for this resurrection morning and for this story that Luke tells of two people struggling with Jesus' death, coming to encounter the living, resurrected Christ. Lord, that's what everybody needs today. Many of us struggle. We struggle with life. We struggle with questions. We struggle in relationship. We struggle in family and parenting and all those things. And God, in the midst of all those struggles, you show up. And you keep loving us. And you keep calling us to yourself. And you keep saying, you don't have to do this alone. I'm here for you. And I love you. And I've made a way for you to be forgiven. For you to be set free. For you to know that you belong to me and I belong to you. And so if somebody's here and doesn't know you in a personal relationship, nobody else has to know in this room that they're praying this prayer. But right now, in their spirit, would they just say to you, Jesus, I really want what this preacher's talking about. I, I, I really want to know you. I want to know you in a personal relationship. I know I've done life my own way. 
I haven't taken into account anything you want for my life. The Bible calls that sin. And so I'm a sinner. And I confess that to you. I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm asking you to come into my life and change me from the inside out. Do in me what I can't do for myself. Help me, God, to overcome these habits that seem to be so self-destructive. Help me, God, in every way to become more like you. God, I'm giving you my life as best I know, and I know how. Help me to understand it more and help me to grow now as a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for being here. We've got one more song. Will y'all get on your feet and join us again in worship and praise? Our God is good, y'all. All the time he's good. Amen. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. People from every nation and tongue, from generation to generation. Hey. 
Save the children who were lost. Will he be back again someday? Say that it runs in his blood.